Digwit August Falchi Europe. Welcome to European Network series on 50 Years of Ireland in the European Union. My name is Ken Sweeney and I'll be your introduction into fascinating conversations on Ireland's story in the EU. We'll be chatting with very special guests about their experiences, feelings and opinions on the Irish adventure in Europe. So I hope you'll stay with us for what we promise will be an exciting series of conversations and debates. The Communicating Europe initiative provides funding to voluntary organisations, educational bodies and civil society groups and bodies for projects intended to deepen public awareness of the role that the European Union plays in our daily lives. It also improves the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues at local, regional or national level. Projects communicate European issues, the role of the European Union and Ireland's place in Europe. Hello and welcome to European Network's Ireland EU50 podcast. My name is Ken Sweeney and in this series we will be complementing our collection of articles that have been published over the last 18 months on the European Network's website that celebrate 50 years of Ireland in the European Union. Each episode will feature one of our contributing writers as a guest and we will talk about their article and delve deeper into the topics and stories that they write about. Today my guest is Patrick O'Rudin. Patrick is Head of Public Affairs at the European Parliament in Ireland and in his article for the European Network's EU50 series, Patrick discusses how we Irish seem to be able to embrace bigger ideas of who we are without losing anything. We all move seamlessly from being passionate dubs to die-hard Munster or Leinster supporters to proud Irish men and Irish women without being any less of the former. Patrick believes that we shouldn't hesitate to embrace our European identity as much as our Irishness. Patrick, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on this podcast. Oh, very well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's lovely. And it's not very often we get the head of public affairs in the European Parliament in Ireland. That's pretty cool. There's <laughs> <laughs> only one. I'm unique. The, the only one here. We're a very small team here. Yeah, yeah. Very small, but very active. I'm really sure of that. Over the last couple of years, it's been quite active for you guys. Being now the only English represented, English speaking represented country in the European Union. It's very cool, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. There's a bit more attention on us. And um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's an advantage for Ireland in many ways, I think now. So some of the, you know, we'll be talking about Brexit, I guess, at some stage. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's the benefits that Ireland is getting more attention and uh, more focus on our work here a bit. Yeah. And just a quick side question I wanted to ask you. Is Malta considered an English speaking uh, member state? Because there's kind of big confusion there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is actually. I mean, just maybe an interesting thing on that just a few weeks ago, um, I was in Cyprus. So a nice, uh, a nice work trip where we brought together school groups from Malta, Cyprus, Ireland, and the UK. So the UK was involved in this and this European Parliament ambassador school um, sort of network that we have. So we it was all these English-speaking countries. We classified them together. Our, our countries who drive on the left, just as somebody else described it. <laughs> yes, that must have been fun, actually. It's great that we work with young people like that because they're so enthusiastic, aren't they? It's brilliant. And they're so, they, th- they see the European Union as this big, huge kind of play zone in some ways. It's inspirational. I think everybody was kind of just thrilled and moved. And, you know, we all get a little bit jaded maybe and whatever, fed up in our work and these sort of things when you see these kids who are enthusiastic and excited and thrilled to be in each other's company and just seeing, yeah, just watching them over a few days, getting on with each other and just exploring their differences and enjoying each other's company. It's, yeah, it's just uh, reinvigorating to see Europe in action in, in that sort of a format. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to kind of address these issues today because your article kind of t- touched on that. And I was maybe thinking what we can do is we could start about the fact that Ireland, um, over the last, say, particularly in the last 10 years, I know European Movement Ireland has been doing a, a, a poll every year and the results have been very high when it comes to approval rate for membership. And one of the claims that we do often hear, and this was very, very, very prominent post-2008, 2009 when the Troika was in, and of course recently when Brexit was happening in the UK, the, one of the big claims we often heard there in the UK was that the EU is very undemocratic. And if you take a closer look at how institutions work in the EU, the Commission, the Parliament, the Council, they, they often show this to be far from true. But why do people still want to believe that it's dem- undemocratic? And why do you think that is, although, again, I must say it's not as bad as it was maybe five years ago, but it's still hanging around, particularly in relation to what many are speaking about, which is the rise of um, right wing and far right organisations and institutions that seem to be popping up. So with regards to um, how the EU institutions work, why do a lot of people still believe that it's undemocratic? And is there something that we can do immediately or is it a long term goal? I mean, you'll always get criticism. You'll always get people labeling, throwing labels and these kind of terms out there and they're, you know, to further their political objectives and, you know, robust debate, whatever, and people having different views is is all perfectly well and good in a democracy. Um, It gets problematic when you get into sort of misinformation. And even we know that, you know, there is disinformation out there. There's people who are intentionally trying to misinform and, you know, uh, have an impact on different political decisions taken at European level. But I mean, by any standards, any measure, the entire European project, Europe, the European Union is a very democratic body. I work for the European Parliament, which is the democratically elected. Every single one of the, the members has had to stand up, go uh, campaign in their local area, deal with uh, the issues, deal with people, debate the things. So they've all got there, you know, with votes of, of people like yourself and myself around the country. Um, it is the second largest democratic institution in the world, second only to India. In terms of the electorate, you have 400 million people that are participating. The elections, maybe the first chance to mention the elections, European Parliament elections coming up next year. So 24, sometime between the 6th and the 9th of June. We're waiting to, to see the exact date here in Ireland. But all of these MEPs are directly elected. They have a massive say in deciding on the laws, the regulations, everything that happens at European level. The other decision-making body, of course, is the, the council. And the council, you know, it sounds the European Council. Sometimes we see these big meetings happening uh, in Brussels or Strasbourg, and you see people walking there and these sort of things. But these are all your local TDs. So every government minister is a TD in Ireland who has again campaigned, debated the issues, been elected, becomes a minister, goes representing Ireland in the council, whether it's looking at foreign affairs, agriculture, fisheries, social affairs, whatever. So these are the two decision making bodies of the EU, the Council uh, and the Parliament, and they're directly elected. Then you have the Commission, which is the uh, executive and the initiator of some of these actions. But again, every country has a, has a, has a European commissioner. So Mairead McGuinness is Ireland's fantastic um, European commissioner, former vice president of the, of the Parliament, very active for a long time. Uh, and again, she's very present in Ireland. So if anybody wants to meet and engage with her and sort of say, we need more action here, you're doing too much there and stop getting involved in this area, it's entirely you know feasible and open and anybody can engage in it. So I think you know it is very democratic objectively that people use labels against it. You're always going to get that, I think. But you know, I think we have to 
to speak up and, and and argue the case and make sure we're informed as citizens uh, about what is the reality. And then if people are saying things that are not correct, then to stand up to them and to to counter their arguments with the, the facts and the information that, that, that we're aware of. Mm. Um, and of course, the media has a role to play in this because they latched on to the idea of Brexit being, you know, this cry for real democracy to return to the UK and so on. And it seemed to be at the time that they won that battle. That battle was really won. But post-Brexit, you know, the, the, the media has almost turned on itself and it's kind of fighting with itself now and saying, oh, why did we believe these lies that all of, you know, the Brexit guys were saying? And the thing is, I suppose... How can we, with the idea that social media is expanding more and more and more, because we look at, say, Facebook, we look at um, uh, Twitter, and we see new institutions coming up like, say, TikTok are becoming more political as well. I mean, there's, there's situations with TikTok as well about how, you know, who owns them, where are they going, where's the information going? But that's obviously a completely different podcast series we could probably do on that one. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just wanted to ask you, um, as for somebody who's working directly at the coalface and so to speak, are the media in general, friendly with the European Union when it comes to that? Or is it, a, is it a battle like, say, what the United States administrations have with their media? No, you're absolutely right to, to mention media. It has an enormously uh, important and, and powerful role to play in, in all of this, how things are perceived. Um, I think we're pretty fortunate in Ireland. We have a pretty balanced um, media. Um, you know, when you certainly when you compare to to our nearest neighbour, which spent you know all the years of membership, um, you know, with very inflammatory headlines on some of the um, the tabloid press and you know printing, I use the terms misinformation, disinformation earlier, just printing lies about Europe, and then this is what people are being fed for many years. So it's not so surprising when they're asked to vote on it that they their perception has been clouded by what they've read in the media. So I think it's it's an important role. I mean, in our job here and based in um in in the in the the, 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 the Parliament Liaison Office, you know, we want to give our MEPs the chance to engage with the media. Um, it's not always easy. The media can you know, it likes more confrontational issues. It likes a little bit of, you know, uh, extreme positions. I mean, I think that's um, an issue with all of this thing about communicating Europe and sort of bringing across the um, the facts and the stories. I know our MEPs find it can be a little bit frustrating sometimes because they're working really hard on different topics and issues in, in Brussels or Strasbourg, but, you know, they're maybe not that exciting and there's some small little incident happens and some whatever other story that grabs all the headlines and, and the, the real work is... Um, is not getting the attention it deserves. So that's that's a sort of a certain view out there. I think, I mean, what came to mind actually when, when you were saying it was there's a, there's a quote from, from Yates that uh, that I like and that I refer back to sometimes about the, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I don't know if you ever heard of this from Yates. <laughs> I, just, I did. And I use it a lot, to be honest. You use it as well. Yeah, I just really like it. Yeah, I think the liberal institutions are not as, they're not taking a leaf out of the right wing book, for example. They're not as passionate about what they believe in, which is crazy because it should be the opposite, you know? It's, yeah, this is, I mean, so it's a challenge. I mean, it was, there was a series on the, the House of Paisley on, on BBC a while back. We obviously, you sit down and watch Trump. I mean, he's captivating. He's a brilliant communicator. And Nigel Farage, who has just admitted that um, Brexit is, is, is not a success. I mean, fantastic communicators, great TV, great radio, great podcasts, I'm sure. Um, so there is that challenge to make the stuff that's happening, to communicate it in a way that is appealing and attractive, um, because the extremes are always the most vocal, then you get polarized views. You know, we have 
Northern Ireland elections recently. You're seeing all of these things play, and so it's it's a constant challenge. But I think that's that's the job of politicians. That's the job of of um, you know people like you know, myself and that to make sure that opportunities are given to to our elected um, politicians to engage and that these issues get the attention they deserve. So we try different ways and means with events, with activities, with um, doing a lot of work on the youth side, um, just with different bodies to try and communicate what's happening in a, in a more balanced and fair way. Yeah, and it's actually um, a great lead into what I was going to ask you actually next. You talked about youth. My next question was about ordinary Irish people. Yeah, you know, we, we're talking we're talking about Europeans in general, but maybe because this podcast series is about Ireland and its 50-year membership in the European Union, I would like to focus on Irish people in this respect. Um, for the matter, say, do what do Irish people need to do to help counter that disinformation and that anti-EU sort of sentiment that unfortunately, it, it, you know, I think you'll you'll recognise this, it, it is growing everywhere. It's not just growing in Europe, it's growing in India, it's growing in the United States, of course, and that's very prominent. So how can ordinary Irish people, in your own opinion, help to counter that if, say, they are, of course, in favour of the European Union? Because although 85% of them says that they are, I sometimes feel that that's kind of typically Irish to kind of go, yeah, everything's fine. Maybe I'm hoping <laughs> I'm wrong, but I, supp- I think I am because really we should have been, we should have gone out with the UK after what happened with the Troika. Uh, but we seem to just realise, look, pull up our sleeves, get on with this, get that dead off our back and let's get back on the road. And I think that was very Irish as well, to be fair. So I'm just wondering what you think. Can Irish people do anything? Or do they need to work with institutions like, say, um, ourselves here at the European Network and, say, European Movement Ireland? Should it be more of those? I mean, I think you could always do more. And, yeah, from my perspective, I would think, yeah, the more organizations and bodies and people that are you know engaged in this the better because people people are busy people have busy lives we all have an awful lot going on i'm sure you know in this week there's all sorts of there's a school graduation you know my youngest daughter last night my oldest one has just got her her results of her degree so people are incredibly busy with lots of things so i mean you know it's not in almost going to become advocates for Europe or this, the, you know, the people have things to be doing. But I think just a certain, you know, to, to make ourselves informed a little bit, to make sure that we, you know, pay attention a little bit to some of the big issues, not just around election time, but that there's um, uh, an awareness of, uh, you know, who's taking positions on what and, and certainly to, to make sure where the opportunity comes to, to get out and vote. I mean, in democracies, to, to get out and vote, to have high turnouts is, is the biggest most important thing hopefully people making informed decisions whichever way they choose to to vote then is you know entirely for themselves if they want to you know if we have a referendum and people vote to to leave or whatever then that is a choice but you would hope that people would inform themselves on the issues before such a thing i mean what um you mentioned brexit again and uh, i was giving it the, the belgian embassy on, on tuesday evening about this and i was saying how am i going to mention brexit in a, a very short thing on 30 years of the single market. So I just thought of Joni Mitchell <laughs> and uh, uh, her quote about, don't it always seem to go that we don't know what we've got till it's gone, um, which I think kind of sums up Brexit to me. And you know, I think people in, in, in Britain are unfortunately realising this, that things we take for granted, things we take, uh, assume are always there, you know, things like the free movement that you can pass through uh, borders sort of pretty freely and easily without the queues that uh, uh, British citizens are having to endure at the moment in many European airports. Um, some of the benefits of being able to trade freely in Europe, even for, for bands who want to go touring, British bands are finding it very, very difficult, I know, to, to get to some of the big festivals that are happening around Europe now. 
Um, so all of these things, it's again, it's human nature. We all do it. We take things for granted. We assume what's there will always be there. You know, it can be as practical as, you know, which bands are going to be on your, um, at your local uh, sort of festival. But it's also about bigger issues like, you know, human rights, European values, um, rule of law, respecting the rights of minorities, um, these type of things. We assume they've always been there. We're fortunate to live in one of the most democratic countries in the world, in Ireland, that we have a free media and a fair media and these sort of things. But these things are constantly dynamic. They're, they're never static. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, in Ukraine, obviously, at the moment, uh, these values are being being fought on on, on the front line. They're, the, the, the brave Ukrainians are fighting for these values. We won't be called upon in such a dramatic way. But, um, yeah, I think we need to stand up, argue, fight, uh, stand up for our values whenever we get the chance. Uh, you made some great points there. And I just wanted to bring you back up on a few there. Let's, we can't really go through this podcast episode without mentioning the fact that Brexit has probably in some ways been a very good thing for Ireland. It made us look more independently at ourselves, I think. And it made us see that across the water is not just the UK, but also we have France, we have Spain. And when we put our minds to it, if we need to trade more with those countries, it was actually possible. The I think the thing was, we were just weren't using those advantages because we had a very good relationship with the UK. You know, we had that land bridge that was doing all the work for us. And then suddenly when this land bridge was closed in many respects, we had to look elsewhere. So would I be wrong in thinking that in some ways Brexit has kind of made us pull up our socks and get on with things a bit better and we, we were, we're the better for us? It's, I mean, it is, you know, a strange outcome of Brexit that it has increased support for Europe in, in Ireland as well as in many other countries. So places like France and Italy, which had a strong anti-EU sentiment and, you know, political parties, as we know, the Front National in France and, 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 and others in Italy and so on, who were calling for those countries to, to, to withdraw uh, from the European Union. That's no longer their platform. So Brexit has contributed to a changing realisation of where we could say in Ireland, you know, on what side their bread is buttered and, you know, where their, where their interests lie. Even those countries that were critical of economic and monetary union, of having a single currency, there's not that many voices out there now that are calling for for Italy to leave uh, to leave the euro and so on. So it has woken people up um, on many benefits that are again were just taken taken for granted. I think I mentioned earlier on Tuesday I was giving a talk on the um, the single market, and so I had to look up some statistics for that. So what we'd seen was that when Ireland joined the EU, sort of back in seventy three, more than forty percent of our exports were live animals. More, way more than 50% of all our exports were going to Britain. So we had literally exporting cattle on the hoof. So, I mean, this, you know, it seems you, when you talk to people, you know, in Brussels where I live for many years about some of, you know, the Irish economy in 73, it was pretty poor. It was very agricultural. It was way behind the rest of Europe. And you see the progress we've made in the intervening decades. And now, one of the most remarkable stats that I saw when I was looking at this up is that now we're exporting almost as much to Belgium as we are to the UK. So I think it's eight and a half percent of our goods exports are now going to Belgium, a little bit more to the UK. That's quite remarkable. And the opportunities that are being explored in Germany and France all over Europe are, are quite staggering. Enterprise Ireland should give a shout out to them because I know they do a fantastic job with encouraging uh, Irish exports and holding their hands and helping them break into markets. So this realization of the opportunities that are there on the education side, the Erasmus program uh, has been incredibly beneficial and I think Irish students have taken advantage of it to a greater extent than almost all other countries 
and really appreciate the experiences they've had in um, in universities across Europe. Um, and this, you know, the benefits this has, you know, filtering back to an appreciation for uh, the benefits of Europe, to enjoying it, to, you know, who knows where, where it leads. We even have a, a little initiative we took with the uh, colleagues in the commission representation on Erasmus babies. So it's remarkable <laughs> the, the number of relationships that are formed when uh, these uh, children are abroad in their formative years, usually the third year of college. And um, yeah, so you meet some attractive uh, Swede or Italian or whatever, and uh, love uh, love takes root. Yeah, yeah, or in my case, an attractive Polish woman. I met a Polish woman on holidays yeah. in the Orkney Islands. I mean, when I think about it I, now, I wouldn't be able to travel to the oh, Orkney uh, Islands without being extremely difficult. And there, back then, it was 2005, so you know, she was there on a holiday trip. I was there, and you know, the rest is history. Okay, <laughs> I didn't know that. That's interesting. Great, congratulations. Yeah, so you know, we've kids that are you know. Bilingual, the whole shebang. So there's a very European atmosphere in our house here. I wanted to talk to you about Erasmus just before we finish up here, which was a brilliant initiative that I remember that the um, the Irish government took on. Was that well, they were able to cover um, Erasmus students in Northern Ireland. I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant move, and it really helped a lot of people, young people in Northern Ireland, who are very unsure about their future. Exactly. No, I think it was a very generous initiative and much appreciated. Um, and because I think whatever way you look at it, the young people were the most disadvantaged by the by Brexit. So again, I mean, if you think it's great and you think the outcome is fantastic, then then that's your point of view. But I would you know strongly argue that all the things they've lost because of of of, um, of Brexit and disproportionately so. I mean, if people were you know at the retired or whatever so on the impact on them won't be so great but taking away all the benefits that you know i really believe europe bestows on, on citizens from from the young people of the uk was terribly sad and unfortunate uh, and again if ever it's a, a motivating a motivating call for for young people to get out and vote as i said we speak um a lot with school groups in 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 our office and many of them transition year students you know who are coming up to to about to be an 18 and to have the first chance to vote and just making sure they do so. The voting age has been reduced to 16 in a number of European countries because of the realization that the stake that these kids have in the future in the decisions that have been taken is much greater than those in their, their 60s and 70s who vote disproportionately uh, in elections. Um, so I think there is a very strong focus and recognition of the importance of youth. We had um, last year, the EU decided that it should be the year European year of youth so a lot of activities and, and um, programs, events happened around that. We have a, coming up this weekend in Strasbourg, a European youth event. So we have a number of Irish uh, kids traveling out for that, for, you know, again, meeting their uh, colleagues um, from all over Europe. We have a Euroscale thing, uh, which is where you can become an MEP for a day ongoing in the European Parliament in Strasbourg this week with a lot of Irish uh, students out there. We do a model council debate with the European Commission representation, again, where kids from different schools get to be the representatives of France or Germany or Ireland in a discussion on a specific topic. Um, so there's an awful lot happening. The European Youth Parliament, another fantastic organization that we work with, um, we have a youth prize. There's just the, the array of things. I think the recognition is there within the EU at European level that we really, yeah, the, uh, the importance of young people and how we involve them and, and associate with them. We have another initiative, um, Together.eu, which is another new initiative of the parliament to really give European youth, whatever, I think it's whatever age up to, you know, mostly people in their 20s, but just to give them a chance to come together to form really a, a, a grouping 
uh, in Ireland in different countries to give them opportunities to engage and debate and just come together as a as a group because you said there is I think latent support for for Europe and for these things but we can't take anything for granted and um, so it's important that we give people the chance to engage with their counterparts and that's a lot of what we're doing just providing opportunities for people to get involved um, the whole education piece is is important as well then I mean what happens in schools it you know in some conversations here and, and elsewhere there can be a sense that the level of knowledge that that young people have um, in their schools in the curriculum about Europe about these decision making structures and that that there's scope for doing more um, I you know, I know there's discussions ongoing on this, but um, yeah, I think we do need to at least give people the information in the first instance so that they can make informed decisions. So I think there's, yeah, we can't overemphasize the importance of, uh, of young people and engaging with them on these topics. The Ireland EU50 podcast is a production by the European Network in conjunction with the Communicating Europe Initiative. Production and editing by Ken Sweeney. Interview notes by Brian Mill, Francis Cowell and Leonard van Otterloo. Hosted by Ken Sweeney with additional support by Brian Mill, Francis Cowell and Leonard van Otterloo. Special thanks to our guests and contributors for taking the time to make this series possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or comment on your preferred podcast platforms and you can access our website at the europeannetwork.eu or follow us on social media. 